Greetings, future fossils. This is Michael Garfield welcoming you to episode 109 of the podcast that explores our place in time. And as much as I thought 100 was a seminal episode, I am very excited to say that after all of these conversations about the future of our species and the refrain of this show to be good ancestors, I've finally moved theory into practice and my partner Nicole and I just had our first kid this weekend and we're embarking on the great and mysterious quest of raising the next generation into love wisdom and community so a very very exciting time and again thanks so much to everyone who has been supporting this show through all of the myriad of ways uh patreon and venmo and itunes reviews and all of that stuff it's not only helped us prepare the garden for this beautiful little girl but it also helps encourage and diffuse some of the most important issues and discussions of our time where are we coming from where are we going which is why i am so delighted to bring bruce damer back onto the show today bruce was the second guest for future fossils ever episode four he's a, a dear old friend of mine and an even dearer and older friend of terence mckenna's he has consulted with nasa he has designed a unique asteroid mining system inspired in part by his Origins of Life research, which is what we're going to be talking about in this episode. Uh, Bruce was part of a team of scientists that made it onto the cover of Scientific American for their groundbreaking research into the hot springs geothermal pool hypothesis for the origin of the progenote. This is before living cells, when life was not even fully individuated from geochemistry, that it was the networks of reproducing and identity swapping biomolecules. And I think that the timing is right for this view because in a sense, we, the human species and our techno-social surround represent a new layer, a new fold in this iterating tale of the ongoing adventures of the progenote and the relationship between the sort of generational transmission of inherited information and the horizontal sharing of information. There's a lot to say about that. But first, I want to give a shout out to Lucas Jackson and to Paula Creevy, the two new Patreon supporters in this period. I, I know and love you both, and I'm super glad to have you join the delicious little crew of people that we have up at patreon.com slash Michael Garfield, where we are very close to sending out a scheduling poll for our next book club discussion, which will be about the book Xenolinguistics by Diana Slattery. It's a major work into the philosophy of language, psychedelics, consciousness, a very important text, and I think uh, one that will generate some really, really interesting discussions. So if you're interested in that, head on over to Patreon, and anybody at any subscription level can join our book club. Also, special thanks to Mike Schwab of knowyourmeme.com for being this show's featured Patreon supporter. 
Know Your Meme is a really cool site. It's It belongs in there with Urban Dictionary and Wikipedia in the pantheon of user-generated knowledge bases, in, in this case, about the ecosystem of mimetic goofery that human beings get into. You can get in there, join the forums, and contribute to what is, I hope, a lasting fossil record, disambiguating the insanity of our internet age and the weird memes that we have created. Uh, certainly useful to any future archaeologists and historians. So if you're a fan of the idea of bequeathing a rich cultural heritage uh, akin to seed banks and so on to those unborn generations, then trip on over to knowyourmeme.com and get involved. Before we start, I want to issue a double apology, one for the length of time it has taken to get this episode out, but I hope by now you understand, and and two, for the occasional crappiness of the sound quality on this call. It seems kind of apropos that in a conversation about network information transfer that we would have uh, local network issues that occasionally rendered Bruce's end of the conversation in something approximating a Terrence McKenna Psytrance remix, sort of a grain delay, slowing, and speeding of his end of the call. If you can tolerate that, this is, I think, one of the best conversations that we have ever had on the show, one of the most important and significant topics that I can even imagine. So... I'm really excited to share it with you, and I'm really excited to step forward with you into a new era of future fossils where we can explore the themes of this show even more deeply and practically and experientially than we have in the past. Thanks, everybody, so much for listening, and enjoy this episode. Well, Bruce, it's a pleasure to have you back on Future Fossils over 100 episodes later. <laughs> wow. You've gotten over 100, my goodness. Mm. Yeah, you were Congrats. four, and this is like recording like 115 or something. So, Wow. Congratulations, Michael. Thanks. I don't have the, the nerve to release them as, as sort of sporadically as you do, and you're like... <laughs> I kind of kind of grinding on it, you know, but I feel bad when I take a week off. Yeah, and I'm I'm due to put the next one out about Mason Hargrave and my work uh for Google for modeling the origin of life at as a Google AI project. So, yeah, let's talk about that cuz I think that we mentioned a little bit about your origins of life research in the the last one and even though you've come a long way in the last like two years or so you know maybe starting at the latest stuff and then kind of working backwards yeah the latest stuff is i mean there's so much going on i i went to new zealand in uh, june for a conference an astrobiology conference and in my suitcase was a great big wooden box of a hundred chemical experiment vials which i had to declare through 
through the biocontrol for New Zealand, which is very strict. <laughs> but they, they generally take people's ham sandwiches and throw them away, but they were fine with these, these vials. And I managed to get the vials down to Rotorua to the Hell's Gate geothermal area and set them into a heat block directly into a 95 degree Celsius uh, bubbling pool, slightly acidic, and then hydrated and dehydrated with a pipetter, uh, each vial over a four-hour period, four cycles, drying them down and then putting a drop of acidic and alkaline water in, and then brought the whole thing back. And it turns out that we polymerized RNA, you know, an important biopolymer, in great lengths and abundance using directly the hot spring waters and the hot spring environments, which are sulfuric acid in vapors and the temperature. And this is the first time that science or a scientist has gone out and tried to make a biopolymer in a natural setting that would have been similar to the early Earth four billion years ago and managed to get the monomers of RNA to stitch together into polymers that were many hundreds of, of chain lengths, uh, chain units in, in length. And uh, it's kind of stunning. And we actually sent the samples off to our colleague in Denmark, and he did an atomic force microscope image of these dried samples with their lipids and their presumed polymers. And we saw these curly Q, windy, long fibrils, 200 nanometers in length, that we're interpreting as our the first time we've actually had a picture of one of these polymers synthesized or polymerized without biology, just with wet drying synthesis. So if if this actually checks out, it'll be one of the great images, I think, of 21st century science. So what are the advantages of going to New Zealand over attempting to do this stuff under similar like chemical conditions in a laboratory? Well, we've been doing, it's a good question, we've been doing it in the laboratory for a decade or so. Uh, colleagues have been doing this experiment. And then Dave, Dave's always been a believer that you have to go out into the wild. You're talking about this, because, the lead author, Dave Deemer, your your mentor in this? My mentor in this. And I've started to do most of the field work. So I went to Yellowstone in 2017 and made vesicles, made membranous vesicles in hot spring waters directly in, in, the, in the, at Yellowstone. And then taking it further, uh, going, I, I sort of talked Dave into this. I said, we've got to get beyond fumarole vents where we've been going at Mount Lassen National Park at Bumpus Hell. And we have to go and usually directly into the hot spring pools. And so took that chance of doing it. It was, it was a very, very meticulous and somewhat stressful exercise to bend over this pool for four hours, two days straight, and to do these experiments. But actually, with my own eye, I could see the, the membranes or the, the, the layers of film of the lipid, which is the organizing principle. It's sort of like your cell walls or soap bubbles or something. I could see them dried in the vials when I would pull them out with tweezers, and then I would rehydrate. And literally, I was mentally picturing that in between these dry layers of lipid were our wiggling monomers were moving around, as we've seen with basically uh, nuclear imaging before. And they're getting together and they're forming these links. They're forming long chains of RNA. And uh, there's a great uh, video that was produced by the New Zealand Herald that's online. But it's kind of a breathtaking experiment because 
it worked. And so now I'm getting together a whole group from India and from the U.S., uh, from New Zealand to go back in a year and try this again with all kinds of building blocks, amino acids to make peptides and different uh, nucleic acid bases and do it directly into the hot springs uh, right on mineral surfaces. So it, I call it growing protocells in the wild, you know, <laughs> hunting them down. <laughs> so this this kind of thing must be happening there already anyway, right? Like, I mean, the, the conditions are similar to the conditions of four billion years ago, and that's the whole point. It must be forming protocells and RNA polymers in there on its own, right? Well, actually, the answer to that question is in Charles Darwin's original 1871 letter to his friend J.D. Hooker, and it's a very famous uh, passage. It, the first sentence says, uh, "What if, you know, if and what a big if, if some warm little pond somewhere, you know, he's, he's musing on the origin of life that could happen in a warm little pond. He gets it right. I mean, he gets all the, so he needs a source of energy and he's got a, the right building blocks, phosphoric salts and things. And then he talks about a protein compound forming and becoming more complex. And that he completely nailed this in 1871. That's called an away from equilibrium chemical system. Charles Darwin nailed this. But then the, the next sentence is interesting. He talks about that it couldn't happen today because modern biology would eat it, would, would consume it, mm -hmm. which is completely right. So it turns out that if, if you have this, this type of material, uh, membranes and peptides and RNA in solution out there, it will get consumed by bacteria immediately or broken down by all of the, the enzymes that are in the environment. And certainly the oxygen gets in the way of the reaction. So modern life kind of prevents a second genesis from, from happening on the earth. And the the first genesis, you know, was, was the conditions of a no oxygen atmosphere and acid rains. And uh, also the early proto-life, if you could call it that, where the progenote would have fed from the sky, uh, meteoritic input, uh, the, the ash fall from the dusty disk of the solar system falling like snow onto the landscape and concentrating all those organic compounds made uh, between stars in cosmochemistry that accretes into these disks as solar systems form that you know they consume the plants consume all this dust and that that's the feedstock and and we're in the golden age of asteroid exploration because just the other day uh, Hayabusa 2 touched down on Ryugu and took it blew, blew its first sample uh, in and the American mission Osiris Rex is about to do, to do that too on to Bennu, its asteroid target. And the Europeans found 40% of the composition of the, the comet, uh, you know, CV67, is uh, organic material and, and water. I mean, the vast amounts of volatile. So we're literally discovering at the same time as this new origin of life on land uh, approach is coming out and being tested everywhere. We're discovering that yet indeed the building blocks of life are everywhere in the solar system even now. Mm. But not raining down on Earth the way that they used to. Yeah, there's there's still quite a volume. In fact, if you clean your gutters, you can find little micrometeorites <laughs> in them. Uh, and it's not the volume that was 
there was a, there was a paper published in PNAS last year headed by Ben Pierce, who's a student at McMaster University, and it, it uh, won awards. It was uh, estimating the volume of material uh, coming onto the Earth that would have fed Darwin's warm little ponds, or as we call them, hot little cycling pools, because the, the whole key to this whole thing is Darwin was right up to a point. You need a warm little pond for concentration and heat activation, but you also need a cycle. And Darwin didn't understand, for example, that proteins and peptides, he didn't, they didn't, Victorian science didn't know about DNA. It was all made by enzymes that would wind and unwind them and fix them and churn out new, new polymers constantly using a system that kicked water out, that kicked water out of the way so that the bonds could form. But on the prebiotic earth, there's no enzymes, so the only way to form these is to dry your solutions down. And the mm -hmm. only place where stuff is dried down and refilled on a regular basis is a hot spring connected to a geyser, which is like, like Old Faithful going to fill that pool every fixed amount of time for thousands of years, potentially. So you get these bathtub rings forming around the outsides of these pools, and that's where the chemistry for lighting can start. Hmm. So, okay, I, I think I brought this up with you the last time we spoke, not on this podcast, but just on a regular phone call. Um, but I want to offer this and see where it lands for you because, you know, I've been working on this cobbled together map of all of the various papers and ideas that I think lend themselves to a new model of major evolutionary transitions, like including the origins of life. And And you've named a bunch of them already. You've named the you know dissipative structure you've named the you know some form of uh, like the the way that the phospholipid membrane forms a vesicle before there's any sort of content for it so there's there are these you know the ways that all these little containers occur and you get this sort of massive parallel experiment running and all the different possible contents of these things this sort of protocell format where you get vesicles or containers in which things can cluster uh, there was a really interesting paper I read recently applying that as a, a metaphor or analogy but a, a tight one to the origins of, of human culture and specifically you know there's like lots of different animals that make tools and animals that learn adaptive behaviors by watching each other but humans seem to be and I, I can't believe I'm saying that there's anything that makes humans unique, but humans seem to be unique in that we have this sort of runaway chain reaction of watching each other's tools, learning them, and then building on them and recombining them in ways. And that the, the authors of this paper suggested you could apply a chemical protocell model to the origins of society as a social protocell, and that in the same way that the early molecules are just sort of like floating around in, in like loose association with one another and then they start huddling together inside these, these membranes, that there's something like that going on with the way that cultural traditions or, or like um, units of cultural transmission, the meme, were just f sort of bouncing around until humans formed a, a membrane through like a tighter association socially and that yeah it created yeah. this container where like suddenly some some really like 
ratcheting, highly adaptive cultural traditions could take over. So, like, do you think that that's a fair analogy or like, yeah, here's the parallel. And I've been going around the world for the last two years presenting this model at conferences like science and non-duality and trans tech and science of consciousness that in fact there's three systems that make the world you know i sound like i sound like neil stevenson with his <laughs> system of the world you know baroque cycle here but mm. that there's actually three properties that that make biology come from the background of physics but they also explain human culture and technology and one of them you just identified which is crowding which is containment so with containment, a protocell is able to get polymers and molecules close together so that it increases the probability of improbable things. Oh, no. Hold on just a second. You kind of glitched out there. It's a, you said it increases the probability of... It's a probability-shaping machine. When you get multiple protocells nestled together... They form what we're calling a progenote, which is the boot-up phase of life. Any kind of enclosure which lets things in or out is a probabilizing machine. It's a machine that increases probability of, of improbable events. Mm. And then when you get multiple containers all connected together, think of them like individuals or cities or societies, when they're nestled together, they exchange information. So when, when these containers and these probability machines get clumped together, just like cities or societies or individuals, the, a network effect comes into being because stuff passes between the containers. So in the origin of life, that's the progenote, that's the boot-up effect of the network of multiple protocells, like a sludge. And then when all that st system cycles like crazy, you end up with a memory system that emerges on top of all that, top of probability, on top of the network effect, comes a memory system emerging through evolution that's called a protogenetics system for origin of life. But that memory system is human memory. It's reading and writing. Once societies get together, form the containers, improbable events become actual, inventions happen, message passing happens, language happens, and then cultural memory is read and written from blueprints to scriptures to story, mythology. And so this PIM, or probability interaction memory, is a cycling system in continuous, almost like the Tao, going in and out, in and out, in and out. And it, it creates on a continuous basis the biological world, which is then the template in the matrix for the cultural world and intelligence and consciousness and everything is cycling in this gigantic potential pile if you will of of improbable things actually happening in the cosmos mm. so two thoughts there one is that if this protocell model holds for human society then the uh the unlikelihood of life occurring again in this way on earth due to it being cannibalized by more advanced developed forms of life is kind of akin to there being a first mover advantage in like a business sector you know like the early bitcoin investors 
or that kind of thing. You know, that there is there's no way to that anyone can ever reach the lev- the level of cultural saturation that the Beatles did ever again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, that's and you you consider that a, a a fair thing? I think that basically that's that's more toward niche filling. Mm-hmm. That when a niche emerges, uh what this is what I'm gonna be talking about in Cambridge in a month. So the University of Cambridge is hosting a conference called Evolution Evolving. Yeah. And it's the, all the new thinking. And it's with Kevin Kevin Leyland and John Odling Smee and the, the whole group with Kevin that, that came to SFI. So it's it's their big meeting to wrap up their five year, you know, mission to other worlds, the other worlds of of, of extending evolution from its uh, evolutionary biology from its dogmatic kind of standard standard model and that's they're presenting and one of the things they're presenting is niche construction theory mm-hmm. from john and kevin and that's niche filling that when a niche is formed uh it could be like a ecological niche the niche changes the chemistry and the environment of the organisms in it and it's a form of epigenetics it's a form of transfer of traits that isn't going through just genes so the strict dog, dogmatists say the only way evolution works is through the transmission of genes. And this group is saying, yes, we agree, that's a major factor. But extending from that, there is niches that are heavily influential. And in fact, what we're going to try to show in Cambridge is that the origin of life was a niche construction process. That mm. this The sludge of protocells that gathered together at the bottom of the cycling pool was necessary for any individual protocell to survive and any polymers to evolve. It was only through the construction of that niche that life could emerge. And that life is about, uh, first and foremost, is about the network and the niche rather than individuals in competition. Because back then, there was no competition possible. In fact, strict competition didn't occur on the earth until the rise of grazers in a more advanced multicellular forms. Everything was in a consortia, uh, the, the microbial consortia, uh, which isn't really strict competition uh, as interpreted by the Victorians in Red and Tooth and Claw. Mm. Yeah, it's more like a, uh, I don't know, like an oligarchy or something. Yeah, it's like... Yeah, it's like the, the feeders are feeding from sunlight on the top and feeding the, the, the layer below, and there's no there's no divisible individuals in that system and in fact individual cells on their own as free living cells didn't exist for the longest time it wasn't possible so in in this sense is it possible that zooming out one layer that life itself is a niche in a landscape of sort of possible chemical dissipative structures right like okay so for folks who aren't familiar with that term we're talking about you know like a flame or a whirlpool you know a system that is um it's it is a more effective way for for free energy to dissipate in that context in that setting than otherwise and so it's one of the ways that we get you know that it's it's been a big piece of this uh this extended evolutionary synthesis is building on this work from the 70s from Ilya Prigogine's work that life is itself a you know one way for 
the universe to wind down entropically, right? So there's all these different systems. Do you see, you know, in that sense, is, is am I stretching by suggesting that there is a sort of prebiotic ecosystem of non-competitive yeah, dissipating fact, structures? This is a, my last trip to the UK, to Oxford, to visit with Kevin and John. Uh, we actually came up with a term, John the father of niche construction theory came up with a term. He said it's proto-niche construction. Mm. Because he initially couldn't understand what we were talking about with protocells assembling and into aggregates and then molecular evolution happening. And then he finally realized that there is no active work being done yet by any of those members. They're completely driven by an external system of the sun coming up in the morning hitting the landscape with all this incident radiation and then drying the system down, which is a major factor in producing its polymers, and then a flush of water coming in, which is a completely external system. And then, of course, little bits of meteorite, meteorite material feeding the system. And so there's nothing active going on. It's simply a big experiment that's being fed and cycled by the conditions on, in the landscape and and yet that can construct something that moves away from equilibrium that isn't just going to dissipate that isn't just dissipating its products its products are accumulating not dissipating and getting longer and more complex as darwin mentioned in his letter so that's the very boundary between the physics of the cosmos and the beginnings of the march toward life completely driven by actually a single, single master cycler, which is the sun rising in the morning. That really is the master cycler, and everything spins off of that that emerged. Hmm. So if, to, if we're going to carry this analogy again back up into the origins of, of human society, then what, I mean, I, 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 I'm putting you on the spot here, but what would you imagine would be the cycling that would be responsible for the sort of like cultural bathtub rings of uh, like an early hominid or hominin proto culture like what is what do you imagine is flushing uh you know material through the realm of early human ideas uh on a sort of like in a, in a periodic or cyclical way um, that's well, say, a... for instance, uh, the early hominid groups in Africa, which are all different sort of subspecies, would have come into contact now and then, sometimes catastrophically. But they would have had their own sort of cultural innovations, their own languaging, if you will, their own tools. And But when one group came into contact with another, it could have been to trade, but it could have been in conflict over a resource. And if one group was defeated the other, they might have find, found some of the tools uh, that the others had made and worked out how they made a flint arrowhead or something and taken over new territory and absorbed innovations. So in a sense, the, the mass of proto-humans that are going throughout Africa, the drying part of Africa all the way down to South Africa, were a big network effect. And the units were the tribal family groups. And the cycling were regular old cycling, birth and death, uh, seasonal changes where you have to follow 
animals which were following rains, which were following the growth of new vegetation, which still which happened in modern Australia all the way up to the modern era with Aboriginal peoples. And certainly in North America with buffalo following fires, which followed uh, the rains, which followed the uh, shoots that they wanted to eat. So it's t intimately tied to natural cycles, but the, the progenote, if you will, or or the protocell is the unit of, of the human family or tribe, and then the interchange happens between those those units. And then cultural memory happens as, as language rises. So oral histories followed by, you know, written text mostly for accounting. But the same the same kind of PIM three-way cycling system builds a very strong strong platform for our evolution. So I would agree with you on that that point. Maybe those are the specifics. Hmm. Yeah. So there's there's something here that is like lurking in the background of this, which is that, you know, I know that you're coming into this study that you know your Deemer is is uh, a chemist sort of in spirit and that you're coming in out of computer science and so you're bringing a sort of information processing frame into this origins of life research but like you know traditionally that that field has been divided fairly sharp and it still is like it, it, when they held the origins of life research workshop at SFI it really felt like the room was sitting on you know there were two sides to the room the people who believed in uh, you know that life is dependent on a particular chemical organization. You know that it's it's uh, contingent on matter, and then the people like David Krakauer, the president of SFI, who I had on the show once upon a time, who see life as primarily an informational process, um, mm -hmm. and it's not really obvious in the sciences right now how to reconcile. Uh, these, you know, the physics and chemistry framing of, of things in terms of matter and energy and the biological framing of things in terms of information and signaling. And so I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm curious, you know, this, this sort of reaches the, the street level in conversation about memes because you've got people like Simon Dedeo at Carnegie Mellon who say that the, the whole idea of a meme is nonsense because there is no physical thing. There is no meme in the same way that there's a gene which we can point to and say, hey, that's the regulatory unit for an organism, uh, mm -hmm. which, again, you know, maybe as an aside is sort of, I think, starting to get interrogated a little bit, um, you know, the whole phenotype genotype thing. But at any rate, I'm curious where you, you know, where you sit on this, like is I know that, you know, you've worked out this beautiful system in which life boots up through a chemical process, but and also that you have some skepticism about our ultimate ability to create digital life. So, yeah, I mean, do you think that life is a substrate independent process or that it relies on organic chemistry or what? Well, I think that the only substrate we know for life is the chemical world. So I think we probably can't even ask that question uh, because it's kind of meaningless. One of my frustrations is with physicists like you know, we've seen several of them in the news all the time, Jeremy England, mm -hmm. people who, who come from a background of, say, mathematics or physics or computational work, which I do, speaking to the origin of life community as though they have anything to add, which they rarely do, uh, because they don't understand 
it's almost as though they're hand-waving and creating pseudocode in their heads, which is very entertaining, but they don't even have access to the computer that that pseudocode would run on. So they don't even know the constraints of that computer because none of these people ever come to the Origin of Life meetings. They don't do chemistry in the lab. They don't do field work. And many of them don't even study biology. They don't study, study cellular biology. They're completely uninformed as to how the chemical and biological world works. They get a lot of attention, but they, they're actually annoying to the people who are working in the field, really annoying. And I find myself, I'm on the side of the experimentalists. I think none of this matters. None of the prognostications or the models or the, the flowery statements matter a, a bit unless they can inform uh, our, uh, how to do better experiments unless they can be tested empirically. They really don't matter because you can come up with any model you want, but if it can't be empirically tested, it's, it's, it's just hand-waving and it's very frustrating. And so I would encourage everyone who, you know, purports to have an idea on the origin of life to actually come on our field work expeditions, to go into the lab and attend, look down the barrel of a microscope at how uh, lipid vesicles work. Because this is the only ground truth we have, is this is the medium that we have to work, this is the code that we have to write in. And my, my process of coming into the origin of life field 10 years ago and being trained by Dave as a great mentor was to bring computer science ideas down to earth, down to the, down to the vial, you know, down to the chemistry, and see what actually will work. And we came up with the hot spring hypothesis as a result of that, which has a geological component. It has a temporal component in terms of timing. It has a chemical component, and it has a computational component. And what we're doing, uh, what Mason and I are designing for Google now, is to go to Google. You're talking uh, about Mason Hargrave, yeah. Mason Hargrave, who was just here, and uh, we just literally sat in the afternoon and designed a system that would represent in the computer through what you might call chemical automata, a representation of the origin of life model that we've come up with scenario that Google can code and put in deep learning AI and, and apply it to this fantastic problem. But we're actually modeling real chemicals in the abstract initially. And we want to create something that's predictive from computer science that we can then go into the lab and say, let's try to add this and see if we have ligase activity or see if we can amplify this product because of what the Google Genesis engine, this is my name for it, has predicted. Now we're doing science. Now we're not, we're not doing flowery hand waving and prognostications about information theory. We're doing science because we're creating a tool to help us guide our experiments that then help us guide us to make the better tool. Hmm. So to talk a little bit more about how computation works in this proposed progenote system. I mean, you talked about the interaction between the different cells or like proto cells. And I can imagine, you know, that there's some sort of, but I mean, what is it computing precisely? So, the, the sole, the sole uh, criterion for whether a progenote or a protocell, which is something that's evolving toward a living cell, toward being able to divide on its own, the sole criteria for 
its success, if you will, as a as a system or as a computing device, is that it propagates a population of polymers to through generations. Because if the polymers that have accumulated and are doing work uh, degrade, then it's over. And it's the same now with your life. If you don't propagate a child, which you, you just have, or you're about to propagate a child, <laughs> then you are, by the criteria of biology, you are a successful working organism. And everything else that you've done in your life has contributed to the propagation of that, that new being. It's the same thing in protobiology. So it has to be. It has to be the same uh, lineage. So then you come down to, well, what makes a successful protocell? Well, one that doesn't pop, one that maintains its shape through a, a hydration cycle when it's wobbling and, and it's in, in, in the liquid phase when we add our drop. That's one criteria. So structurally, that means polymers that attach to the membrane might hold it together better. So that's a structural thing, that there's nothing active going on other than the fact that two things are next to each other. And then in subsequent cycles, maybe something jams through the membrane to allow more dangerous uh, models like salt out, because salt tends to concentrate and blow things up. Mm. So then a molecule that sticks into the membrane suddenly appears, is selected for. So that's the kind of computing that's going on in that Things are selected for and they're synthesized, and then if you're lucky, a template rises that allows copies of that same thing to get synthesized in larger numbers rather than just at random. And then mm. you're on the way to life. Hmm. So, okay, so there's this term coming out of the extended evolutionary synthesis. I know you're familiar with uh, evolvability. It has to do with plasticity right which is the 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 degree to which a a given genotype a given sort of set of genetic coding can program for a range of different possible bodies and behaviors to suit uh, a, a range of different possible environments and so like as the environment gets uh, more complex due to niche construction activities of all of these different species and there's like this sort of ongoing uh, enrichment of ecosystemic diversity, then the organisms in that often find themselves at an advantage if they are more flexible with respect to the possible body that they will actually generate in a, a sort of increasingly unpredictable environment, right? Mm -hmm. If I'm understanding this correctly. And yeah. so uh, on top of phenotypic plasticity, there's evolvability, which if you think about like velocity and acceleration, right? Like evolvability is sort of the first derivative of plasticity, maybe, where it's about how flexible the genes are themselves or the gene regulatory network is to creating possible, how rigid is it? You know, how, how adaptive is this, you know, is this thing? If you tweak one little thing here and the whole thing breaks, you know, it's pretty brittle. You know, you can think about this like yeah. legal architecture, right? So there's this trend. Like any, any, any laptop, if it has a single pin <laughs> missing on a chip, it is crashed and burned. Yeah. So it, it has it has no flexibility. You know, right. most of our technology has zero flexibility. Right. So so there's this this thing that we're seeing with human evolution, 
um, that comes up in, about how we've we've sort of shifted in terms of the main unit of information transfer being genetic to the main unit being cultural. And so like, even though you're saying, oh, you've succeeded as an organism by reproducing, uh, you know, I know a lot more people these days who are preoccupied primarily with the evolutionary continuity of their ideas and cultural contributions rather than the success, the success of their, you know, germ cells right mm -hmm. that the cultural transmission has taken over as the dominant force in human evolution and uh so you know i wonder something like that must have been going on uh you know to to sort of zoom backwards a genetic information transfer must have been an improvement i think over some earlier less plastic less evolvable form of physical information transfer in a prebiotic environment right and this is this is like heresy in biology right well, here's, here's the irony of all this carl Vose in his 1977 paper and then again in 2002 he named uh, the unit that takes you from the pre-biological world the protocell into the biological world he named it the progenote and one of the properties that he declared the progenote might have is that because it didn't have it hadn't crossed what's called the darwinian threshold where genes are conserved and they're passed down on a lineage you know to dividing cells or their, their speciation prior to that genes were shared horizontally under all of them there were there was no collective there was a collective ownership of genetic material and he he claims that this would have caused a much more rapid evolutionary uh, progress. Because as soon as you have cells holding on to their genetic complements and they're, they're passing on their traits, you actually have, could have potentially a slowing down of the rates of genetic adaptation, which is kind of a really interesting in concept. Uh, bacterial communities still do a massive amount of horizontal gene sharing today. It's still a, the plasmid structures and things but back to your original point, which is quite interesting, uh, you have to be able to be able to wobble off of maxima. So the example that I like to give is Darwin's finches. And I was in the Galapagos a year and a half ago, uh, which was an amazing experience to stand where Darwin came ashore from the beagle. Darwin's finches, if they had pointy beaks that were very, very good at getting uh, insects out of a certain kind of tree that the insects burrowed into. If that tree suddenly had a bad year or a bad season uh, and those trees are in decline, uh, their offspring, if they had slightly curving beaks, if the offspring were allowed to wobble off the optimal pointy beak thing, and there was one oddball that had a more curving beak, it could crack seeds and get an alternate food source. And so the species wouldn't have completely tunnel in to extinction because it would have a pathway along a ridge. And these, these are Stuart Kaufman's terms, a uh, pathway along a ridge that came off the, the local maximum to allow the bird to climb into a new maximum. So you're talking about, you're, still you're able you're talking to, about an evolutionary fitness landscape, I think, right? So that's, that's worth yeah. defining a little bit here <laughs> for people. Yeah. And, and I think that that's true across the board. Uh, in culture and 
human technology. If if we try to, you know, good examples, really good examples of this are like the Lisp language, you know, which was created in the 70s and 80s, and it was it was like really a perfected language for even for AI at the time, but it died. And uh, there's a fellow who wrote a book about this called Worst is Best, which is that something that's highly adapted to a niche that's quite small gets gobbled up by, you know, lesser in their estimation. So people just started writing in C and C++ and Java eventually, and Lisp was, you know, fell off. Um, the Macintosh computer versus DOS was an example in the 80s where DOS just took over and Truthfully, Macintoshes today are just, you know, they're just a Unix running on top of a DOS PC with no DOS, but they're running on a standard PC. So the Macintosh was killed by this this very high and inflexible maximum that it occupies. And they, the company, Apple, had to re-engineer and say, we can't make our own hardware anymore. And we have to use a different OS because we can't rewrite Mac OS, so we're going to create a Unix so the Mac went away. It actually went extinct and was replaced by something on more of the the standard model. As an example that our listeners probably are familiar with. Hmm. So like a, a, another example of that would be, um, it, it, this seems to be related to the idea of like evolutionary senescence, like an entire lineage of organisms becoming too specialized and then getting, getting wiped out. That that's a, a you know, I think about, you know, when you're talking about the the transition from horizontal to vertical gene transfer, from like sort of permit genetic promiscuity to enclosure, then in a way, like you were saying earlier, uh, that enclosure creates an opportunity for a certain kind of uh, iterative experiment within that within that population or that membrane or whatever, but it also limits the recombinant creative possibility. So like, you know, as, as things reach a certain layer of complexity, you know, as we get more and more, the complex cell emerges out of a constellation of bacteria, and then it stops having bacterial sex because this, the complex cell is so intricate that that rate of mutation and recombination would ruin the f sort of fragile mechanisms mm -hmm. inside and that something like that is going on with um and so and so the recombinant part occurs through the origin of what we now know as sex you know like it, it, it finds a new uh expression and so something like that seems to be going on right now with uh proprietary knowledge and like how so much of science is being done um within corporations now and then like the idea of open science is something that people are having to fight for in a way that um would have been sort of bizarre to people a hundred years ago i mean do you see a sort of a, like a, a similar kind of like uh information structure in in the sense of like institutions coming together as complex organisms and then withholding their own sort of cultural units from each other. And then there's like yeah, corporate I, sex. <laughs> a, a good, a good metaphor is the arrival of crown forests. So for example, where I live, there's redwoods everywhere and mm. redwoods 
are a highly evolved crown forest and they completely dominate their environments. Virtually no plants can grow under redwoods. So they're fed by mycelial layers. There's a few plants that are adapted, but they take over. They take all the resources. They take maximum accumulation of power, of sunlight and mass. But they're extremely vulnerable. So redwoods are going extinct worldwide because of the drying of the planet and glaciation events when large conifers used to be on all the continents. So these, these crown forests, like a large complex corporation that's a monopoly in its space, will snuff out other comers and try to dominate everything. And this happened in pharma. So big pharma created these large lit- litigious corporations that controlled you know, billions in, in market. But then what's happening to pharma now is that it's so inflexible, so non-innovative that the big brain, the brains have left. But the, we need these stages, these cycles of, of control and, and uh, federalization in a way, and then complete anarchic breakdown uh, is, the, is another phase. And then the control and the centralizing of power happens again. It's just been a cycle we've been able to see track pretty well since the 19th century. Where do you think we are in that cycle now in terms of, you know, groping towards the planetization of culture? You know, we're at this point where I think everyone feels like civilization is in crisis. And the question is whether it's going to sort of break upward into a new macro systemic order you know this like a lot of people are afraid of the new world order but it could it could you know just as well be um you know a, a sort of federation of worlds kind of positive well, I think thing that, or does it need to there collapse has, there, there hasn't been a decade for the last 150 years where it hasn't been pronounced that civilization is in a crisis and we don't know what's going to happen this is like a general principle, uh, but I don't think it. Is, I don't think it is in crisis. I think okay. it's just along the path of of its evolution. So, you know, I I don't see where the crisis is. I look out my window and I travel the world and I go from everywhere from the Amazon to Pakistan to to the Galapagos or China or whatever. I don't see a crisis. I don't see a crisis that would have been easily seen in the 1850s or during the Spanish influenza of 1918-1919. That was a serious crisis. That was an existential threat, but I don't see that anywhere. I think it's mostly in people's minds that's in a crisis, which can be a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm. But the, 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 the big media empires that dominated the second half of the 20th century, NBC and news organizations, of course, have crashed out in publishing houses and uh, crashed out and were taken over by new media giants. I mean, that's, but there was a period of maybe 12 or 14 years and where there was a transition and there was a sort of open frontier, you know, the John Perry Barlow cyberspace manifesto period and all that. <laughs> and that was just a temporary period before the consolidation of new types of control. And of course, the return of almost like Mussolini principle in terms of uh, fascistic right-wing leadership, and perhaps even also left-wing, where you tell one lie at a time. And Mussolini was 
was very good at this. He's the first fascist, and in a sense, he was the first leader to use modern technology starting in the 1920s in Italy. And he used to talk about it, you pluck one feather at a time from the chicken, so they don't notice that this one feather coming out, and by the time they're naked, you know, you're putting them in the pot, right? Because that's what you do, you know, and of course, Hitler wrote in Mein Kampf of how to do this, and he drew from earlier earlier thinking. And, and we kind of have a return of that, of like, oh, we can directly manipulate people. And actually, people can now directly manipulate other larger groups with conspiracy theories and fake news and stuff. So this is this new era where young people have no idea what what a true thing is. This is probably more of an existential threat than even nuclear weapons were. We, we look back in the 70s and 80s and 60s and think, well, that was a more rationalistic time because, the, you know, even the old guard of the Soviet Union, they were more, there was more common sense in them and more reality-based thinking than today, you know. And so if, if we are living in, in fantasy that is dissociated from facts of what is going on in the world, we're in, we're in danger because truth will eventually come and pull the rug right out from under you and you find out, oh, you can't, this food item is now no longer producible mm. because such and such was denied for so long or sea level rise started happening. I met a, when I was in the country of Qatar last month, um, doing presentations to the, the government there and to the sheikhs. And one of the people in our group was uh, an admiral in the U.S. Navy. He's retired. Brilliant man, Norman Hayes. And we spent an afternoon walking along the shore of the Gulf. And this fantastic new city is... Are you back? Oh, sorry. Yeah, I, I lost you at a fantastic new can city. Can you hear me? I can hear you just fine. Let me Let me try calling you back. Okay. All right. I lost you. You said you were in Qatar. Yeah. It did. Is your recording still going? By the way, is, I I I, I, st I paused it and it's going again now. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I don't. I think Skype is just so unreliable. It's it's a combination of things, <laughs> but uh. it'll work. It. What's what's been going on in the call so far is occasionally you slow down a little and then it catches. It tries to catch up yeah. with itself and speeds you up a little bit. So it, you sound. Not entirely unlike a Terrence McKenna Psytrance remix, but um, <laughs> you know okay. we can we can roll with it. I think I think Zoom is better. Yeah, uh, next time yeah. next time we'll try Zoom. At any rate, you were saying you were in Qatar. Yeah, so I was in Qatar last month, presenting to the government there, and there was a one person in our group was an admiral from the navy, retired Norman Hayes, mm. and he and I stood on the on the shore of the Gulf, looking over at this fantastic new city that's been built just in the last five years, realizing it's all going to be underwater in a few decades. It's all going to be rusting scaffolding, right? And the Qatari government has made no plans for this. And then we realized, you know, I had heard a, at a meeting in, in Silicon Valley here, I'd heard a conversation between a Google person, a Facebook person, and a Netflix or somebody where they had gone to the county of San Mateo, an apple, 
And they'd said, we've just built $20 billion of campuses, all of which are going to be underwater. What are you doing about it? What are you doing about diking the bay, doing the bay area abatement, the bay area wall or seawall? And the county of San Mateo is like, uh, you know, we haven't thought about it. <laughs> and the comment that, that Norman Hayes made was, we need to be planning throughout the oh. – Oh, there we go again. Oh yeah. I can You're back. I can hear you. Arguably can this you is hear me? I can hear you. Yeah, arguably this is an example of why life couldn't start in the ocean. <laughs> <It's> like, too <laughs> diffuse. <laughs> not, oh, God. not not yeah, clustered I was enough. Trying to call you for about 5 minutes and it said you weren't online at all. Yeah, I I was doing so, the same. Hilarious. Weird. Ugh. Anyway, we've, we, we're, so we're coming up on the, yeah, we're coming towards the end of this. Anyway, I, I'd love to just, yeah. Anyway, so you're in Qatar. No one's planning anything. The seawall isn't happening there or in San Mateo. So yeah, we worked out that the 1920s or the 2020s rather must be the decade of planning for sea level rise. Because his comment to me when I said that these companies that approached San Mateo County to ask them about their its plans he said that the cities shouldn't be doing individual plans they shouldn't be taking this up as a as a local thing that this is a national emergency and an international emergency and he wants to establish a conference a, a global conference that will bring all these cities and governments together to come up with a unified plan his idea was to host the conference in New Orleans because New Orleans is not is a place that's not going to be around, right? It's not savable under any circumstance mm. because of the Mississippi. So there will be cities and areas we have to let go, and there will be cities where we can uh, sustain the sea level rise, and the choices will have to be made. And he thinks that this is best done through the Department of Defense. And that it will be a new mission for them. Uh, instead of building stupid walls of Mexico, we need to be building sea walls, and we need Mexican labor to help do it. So we actually need to open the borders because we're going to need a vast. It's going to be a new mission for the military, and no more stupid drug wars or wars on terror that produce nothing but destruction. And he was part of that, and he was he was in Iraq and Afghanistan for 15 years, and he said it was just a huge waste. But now we need to get down to business because we're under existential threat. So his call was that the 20s need to be the time of design and coming together with great engineering and solutions. And then the 30s, we have to be building. We have to be actually executing all over the place on a massive scale. Otherwise, we're going to lose 50% of our infrastructure. You know, by mid-century or later, we're going to be losing you know, we'll lose certainly lose Wall Street, we'll lose Silicon Valley, we'll lose farmlands, we'll lose factories in China, we'll lose lose everything. And migration from the coasts, you know, is is going to be a huge pressure. So this is Norman Hayes' idea of what needs to be done next. And it's it's over top of all any other priority that humans think they might have, because sea level rise is coming. Would this be an example of a, a wet, dry cycling leading to some sort of, you know, information exchange between members of a transcultural yeah. progenote? Yeah, it's exactly. It's a stressor. It's a huge stressor on the whole system because the whole planet, we're living on a progenote planet. 
We're all interconnected. We're all in the network. We're all jostled together. We're all reading and writing the same memory. So we are a progenote planet. And if the planets to erupt uh, into a disaster of our own making at this point, or is to flower or move forward into a great future where we settle the solar system, you know, and we expand the biosphere, we have to get through this stress point that's coming. And it wasn't thermonuclear war, which would have been almost unsurvivable, but it's climate change and sea level rise and massive changes to the way we have to do agriculture in the next 50 years. And and we we can do it. We can bring all of the best engineering and nerds and planners and uh, push push the politicians out of the way because and the cities will, could do that because the cities are seeing the need, you know, and the push push the politicians and the rhetoric and the ideology out of the way and get down to work. This seems to me to be one of these sort of forest fire moments in the cycle where the existing vertical structure of our social ecosystem, you know, like the, the power structure is going to get flattened considerably in order to facilitate horizontal information transfer in response to this existential challenge. Right. Mm -hmm. So are, are you, when I, when I ask like, what do you, what, what can you apply from this study of the origins of life and major evolutionary transitions into whether you want to call it a crisis or not is sort of beside the point <laughs> into the, the, the transition that we are facing now. Do you see us as moving into a, a phase of greater or lesser stratification or like where are the, you know, are we coming or going? Like what's the, what's the applied lesson here based on where you imagine we are in the process? Well, what, where we are is similar to a big weather event. So, if you think of those progenotes in those hot spring pools, occasionally there would have been a huge rain deluge or there would have been a, a huge windstorm or even a tsunami from a big meteorite impact that crashed over the island. Huge stressor, wiping out many, many environments. And the ones that survive, uh, the progenotes that survive and the pools that survive, uh, go on and flourish because it's actually cleaned out some of the environment and it's caused evolutionary adaptation to mo go, move more rapidly and for things to be selected more rapidly. And you needed global catastrophe over and over and over again to create robust microbial life. So this period of, of continued asteroid bombardment would have been essential for life to become robust. So in sense, what's happening now is the equivalent of a global asteroid impact happening over a short enough or a long enough period of time, maybe decades, to allow us to respond culturally, technologically. And then out of this whole thing, we're going to uh, evolve as a, as a planet. A lot of the dross is going to be dropped away. I mean, in, in, in a big earthquake, people actually start talking to their neighbors and people work together. The sort of facade of, of a city drops when there's a big disaster. People see each other and look each other in the eye, and they're not as swayed by story. They're not in a virtual world. They're here. And that's that's possibly what's going to happen with us is this shakedown will happen. And we're going to emerge you know, either devastated and really not have a civilization, not have air transport and not have all those things that we take for granted in Trader Joe's and processed foods and new phones that come through Amazon, that could all go away. 
and with with a large part of the population, or we could emerge much stronger and clearer as a civilization. That we we would look back on this period of time when we're deluding ourselves with these stories and allowing people to take the microphone and 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 give us this false information for their own benefit, you know, and their own entertainment, and realize that was an almost fatal diversion from what was needed. And that we had to take our eyes and our ears off of that, that echo chamber and that microphone and that narrative and get to work on what was really going on. It's, it's in a sense a test. The longer we deny realities and we fall under the sway of, of storytellers and story fabricators, the more dangerous situation we're going to be. It, it's almost like if you're it's the old character that used to, uh, the siren, you know, the sirens would sing and the sailors would not notice their ship was going toward the rocks. And so we, we have to throw that off. We have to, you know, in a sense, get real and wake up. You know, the, the new age people are talking about awakening and waking up, you know, as, as humans out of, out of story. And perhaps there's some truth in that. You know, the Buddhists say the same thing. Because people really are lost in a lot of imaginal realms, and because they're consuming so much media, they're they're put into anxiety realms, just mm. overwhelmed constantly, and it's not healthy. I mean, on the flight to Qatar, I sat next to a fellow who's a professor at the Annenberg School of Communications at USC, which is I went in the 80s to Annenberg, and he said we consider this to be kind of a form of pollution. Uh, the, the, this kind of fake news and all this stuff, it's a form of pollution in, in the environment, just as smog is a form of pollution. And it's very unhealthy for the population. And if we can treat it like that, like a pollutant that is toxic, actually, and has health effects, it has societal effects, we should be treating it this way as a toxic thing, toxic pollutant. And that's what you know his, his study is on. And what's happened to media is these, these, this pollutant has come into it, and this toxicity has destroyed traditional journalism. And this thing has come in, and what is the consequence for society? Well, you know, so, and yet, one of the things that I love about your uh, the model that you're working on is that it points to a sort of failed excretion <laughs> as the origins of cellular reproduction you know and, and William Irwin Thompson's got this great line that you know evil is the enunciation of the next level of order and it and it's a recurring theme on this show that the one of the big questions one of the great syntheses of this next societal platform is how do we handle pollution do and and this is true whether it's material pollution you know energetic pollution informational pollution right that there is a sense in which every you know if you look at the the great oxygenation event two billion years ago it was industrial waste from photosynthesis that led to this crisis because life couldn't metabolize oxygen at the time it was it was mm -hmm. it was dangerous and then we figured out how to do it we figured out a way to you know the the uh, glycolytic aerobic metabolism springs up as a way of of weaving this in so i th i think about this in terms of fake news it, it's you know hearing you talk about all this stuff i'm actually in a weird way um or what seems weird now i'm actually kind of hopeful that we've reached such a, a level of freak out with fake news 
and you know AI counterfeiting and so on because it suggests that we're on the cusp of finding a way to metabolize this kind of bullshit in society like it's a recognized problem and that in some way we're going to be able to you know whatever comes next society is going to find a way not just to dispense with pollution like it's it's working in whatever weird way it's like it's functioning as metabolic output of some kind of system here but like we'll find a way to make it food rather than trash the challenge that you have though with toxin buildup is eventually it kills the organism <laughs> so this organism of, of human beings their ability to mentally operate to solve problems to work with their neighbors if that's threatened, you end up with, uh, like, good examples, Yugoslavia in the 1990s. Milosevic and his crew introduced a huge amount of fake news and toxicity into Yugoslavia on purpose until it exploded, and then it became genocide, and the society uh, immolated itself. And cities were ruined. Uh, people were, it was basically like the old Europe they had, they had the death camps, they had mass graves, everything. And it was done by a small group. It was actually fairly predictable. Even Madeleine Albright nailed these guys and said, I know what you guys are trying to do. You know, and luckily Yugoslavia was contained. The scars are left, but the, the society rebuilt. Europe and as a whole was like that in 1945. And for the Europeans, it was it was shocking to see it happen again because they felt they had grown out of it. Now what's happening in Europe is the same sort of thing. We have to get serious. We have to look at the whole system. We have to, we have to basically get over all this distraction. We've, we've got to get down to business on our own surviving and our thriving in the 21st century. We, we can't, we just have to clear out this noise and this pollution and get, get down to it and start working with each other at, at a different level. Mm. Uh, because the distractions are fatal um, at this point. And, you know, I, I just clear, I don't even look at news. I don't even know what's going on. But people come to my doorstep and say, oh, it's the worst time. And I like, wow, who is who is whispering in your ear? Some kind of a worm tongue, because it's not. It's the best of times. And the worst of times, you have no idea, you know go back into the 1850s and or the 1910s or the 1940s and you have no idea what worst of times means or Czechoslovakia in the 80s or Yugoslavia in the 90s you've no idea so someone is really extracting a lot of anxiety energy and, and direction from you or whatever they're extracting by telling you that and but there's it's a dangerous distraction because the it, it just prevents us from as a society from doing the right thing and we just we need to take all our genius and all our goodwill and our, our technology when it works and and we have to do the right thing we have to solve some problems and it's time to get to work so that would that would be my my closing remark <laughs> for this whole thing and like the progenote we've got to survive the next tsunami that comes over our island and and then we will pass the grade. We will be able to go on. And the test is coming, and we set it up for ourselves. We set it in motion 200 years ago. And it's coming for us. Um, we have to prepare. It's a hero's journey. <laughs> the ultimate hero's journey. 
Well, so is that a good? That's a good concluding soundbite or something. That's, from... Yeah, I think I think it's 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 interesting. It's a great way to uh, to wrap leaving this tension in place between your let's focus uh, angle and my well, we're going to have to find a way to metabolize all of this this stuff that we think of as as waste as pollution because to me the you know it seems like we're coming to the end of this age of uh externalizing all of our costs you know that that was sort of the 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 killer app of capitalism and it worked for mm. a long time and and now we're at a point where the solutions that we're seeking i think are in you know cradle to cradle manufacture in regenerative technologies in finding a way to recycle absolutely everything that we consider useless byproducts of civilization. And um, where is the rec the point of reconciliation between Michael and Bruce on this issue? I think that's, that's probably the subject of another call, <laughs> but yeah, I think so. <laughs> but it's been great having you on the show again. And um, you know, I, I really encourage everybody to seek out your, your work, your talks, your your scientific publications. Where would you send people who want to go deeper than this call went with your research? Well, thank you, appreciate it, and uh, hope the listeners can hear all that and and uh, look forward to the next time, hopefully before podcast two hundred. Oh yeah, I think it will be awesome. Good luck with all your your writing and your conferencing, Bruce, and we'll catch up again with you before too long. Thank you, Michael. Bye. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Future Fossils is part of the MindPod Network, along with other great shows such as Third Eye Drops, The Astral Hustle, It's All Happening, Synchronicity, Rainbow Brain Skull, and many others. Subscribe to them all. And if you'd like to support this show directly or would just like to know more about what I am doing in numerous other media, head on over to patreon.com slash Michael Garfield. Thanks for listening.